welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson, and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape, and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Churchwell, Chair in Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of London. Sarah is an expert in 20th century American literature, culture and history. She has written four highly acclaimed books, The Many Lives of Marilyn Monroe, What Americans Like, Careless People and Behold America. She writes for newspapers and magazines on both sides of the Atlantic, is a regular guest on TV and radio and has judged the Booker Prize, the Women's Prize for Fiction and the David Cohen Prize for Literature. She talked to me about the return of the expert, the power of scholarship and how to fight falsehood and fascism in a pandemic. Well, welcome to Work Interrupted, Sarah. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. So how is lockdown three going for you? (laughs) Um, Well, I will say that I am finding lockdown three harder than the first two lockdowns. Um, I I think I'm not alone in that. Um, Obviously, um, the weather actually doesn't help. Um, and you would think that in lockdown that wouldn't matter, but it does. And the little bit of time we can get out is dreary and wet. And, you know, you can't even, you know, those of us who have any kind of outdoor space can't use that to save our sanity to the way that we could, um, you know, in the first one. And and for me, I'm somebody who, who um, as I think you know, I'm somebody who responds a lot to the sun. Um, and I grew up in a sunny place. So um, I, I'm not, I'm, even after 20 years in Britain, I'm really not accustomed to grey, rainy Britain. I just I still struggle with it. So to be locked in and then the only times I could go out, that's what I encounter I've been finding. Look, it's just, a, it's grinding everybody down, isn't it? It just mm. is. And tempers are frayed and mm. people are exhausted and, you know, all of the things that, for all of us in all of our different ways, the, the things that we enjoy, um, about our various existences, you know, just too much of that has been wiped out for a year. Um, yeah. And, you know, however positive and constructive we all try to be, I think everybody's kind of at the at the end of their reserves of, of you know, jolly, <laughs> you know, of jollying through it, uh, which sort yeah. of left. I couldn't agree more. Yesterday, I I actually put on Twitter, anyone want to join me for a primal howl on Thursday nights at 8pm on the doorstep because you just think okay enough this is enough and some of that's to do with the pandemic and you know obviously there are all kinds of things going wrong for all kinds of people some of which don't relate to the pandemic but to have things go wrong on top of an effing pandemic just feels like too much but um but there we are you you got COVID very early on and luckily made a full recovery but can you say a bit about the experience? Yeah, absolutely. I got it right at the beginning um, it, um, in March, at least the beginning of, you know, of it hitting Europe. Um, and I, I travel a lot. And um, my husband um, is a businessman who also travels a lot. And we were both seeing large groups all of the time. So it really wasn't surprising that we would be we both got it um, early. We, we were really lucky. We both had really mild cases. Um, my husband only seemed to have it for about 48 hours, which was just downright irritating. Um <laughs> And um, except then the only um, symptom that he had uh, for a while, for a fortnight, um, was the loss of smell, which at that point they were still arguing about whether that was really a symptom or not. But a colleague of mine was actually involved in the in the work around getting anosmia identified as a symptom. And so I had that little bit of extra, you know, kind of insider info um, that loss of smell was looking actually like a marker symptom, which made us really confident that we had it. Um, because actually the thing we didn't have was I didn't have the one thing I didn't have was a fever. And if you remember at the beginning, Mm. they, that was the thing that they said was the, was the definitive marker. And I actually started out with a headache and a sore throat. Um, and, but then eventually I went through, you know, kind of spiraled through all of the other symptoms, except, um, except a a high fever, but I had it really mildly. It just lasted for forever. I had it for about, well, not forever because people have long COVID and I didn't suffer with that. So, I mean, I really got off lightly. Um, so I had it for a month. Um, and I was tracking my symptoms by that point because, you know, we knew something was going on, right. I mean, lockdown had begun and all of that. And so, um, 
And so I know I had it for a month, but it was very low level. I felt like I had this kind of grim, low level virus, but I, you know, I, I didn't even take to my bed for one day with it, which gives you an indication of how very mildly I had it. So I just kind of sat in the sun and convalesced, you know, and tried to get some work done. So, um, you know, as far as um, the ways that people have suffered with this, um, I mean, I've actually just lost a friend to it. So um, very well aware of how real it is, but um, we were incredibly lucky. It's only fair to recognize um, that I've got it. I've, in every sense, I've had it lately. I've been lucky, um, and and to try to at least count my blessings mm. and to be grateful for um, the ways in which this has been easier for me, and to and to spare a thought and some compassion and consideration um, for the people who are having it that much harder. I feel exactly the same. And I, I've actually felt incredibly privileged all the way through. And I've really felt that in my bones. I mean, not just in a kind of abstract way. I, I don't feel I have suffered during this time. As you know, I've had plenty of suffering before it. And I kind of went through my pandemic uh, with yet another family bereavement before it. But I haven't found it personally that difficult. There are all kinds of things I miss. I miss friends. I miss parties. I miss, you know, all kinds of aspects of work that, you know, one does outside the home. But I haven't personally found it difficult apart from the agony of seeing other people suffer and people die and I mean I haven't seen people die but then the news is just unbearable to to watch um but anyway I guess we should not uh spend all our time talking about the terribleness of this um and and I do want to talk about your work so Obviously, you are Professor of American Literature and Public Understanding of the Humanities at the University of London. And the public bit is a lot more tricky when you're not even allowed to leave the house except for an essential journey. What does a professor of, first of all, what does a professor of public understanding actually do? Um, well, the idea is, yeah, um, it's kind of what it says on the tin, but is to um, is to advocate for and to make clear the value of um, humanities research in everybody's lives, because a lot of people think that the humanities are luxury, um, that in these, you know, austere, even even before the pandemic, they would say, you know, in these days of austerity, the humanities are luxury we can't afford. And now in the pandemic, you know, all energy is going to, you know, science and medicine, obviously the STEM, so-called STEM subjects, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and my job is to remind people how much of their own lives are actually informed by and um and how much of their own joy and their own uh social interaction and their own relaxation and and leisure is actually defined by the humanities it's just in ways that we're not always conscious of so you know when lockdown began you know what was the first thing everybody did everybody was sharing lists of films and books and people were you know starting up new book clubs and people were you know people you said you know the zoom calls and stuff but people were doing you know watching films together and watching films with their families and um and sharing music lists and and um and okay that's the arts but it's also the humanities people were turning to history they were um everybody wanted to know about the spanish flu everybody was making that comparison but you know we know that we're interested in history we know that we're interested in politics but we tend not to talk about that as the humanities but the problem is is that if you're in a culture which says that only the stem subjects matter then the humanities starts to get either taken for granted or in this case, you know, in both the US and the UK, um, wildly underfunded. And um, and basically, you know, we're told that it doesn't really add um, to quality of life, but or, or to it doesn't really, you know, help us in a crisis like it's, you know, um, so, you know, it's what you again, you know, it's what you do in your leisure time. Well, first of all, people were kind of, you know, stopping themselves from going crazy with some of um, the stuff that, that people were looking into. Um, but also, you know, the idea that in this day and age, you don't need to know anything about politics and history is just ludicrous. I mean, we're in the midst of a culture war over history right now. I mean, the government has just declared a war on, on you know, heritage organizations that don't say what it wants them to say about history. And, and so they recognize how important the humanities are, or they wouldn't be declaring war on it. But they also don't want to fund it. 
and they want to control it because they do recognize how much it shapes the narrative and how much it shapes the political narrative and the cultural narrative. Um, and that's really where my work comes in is I work a lot on, on, on cultural mythologies. Um, so the ways that we understand ourselves as a culture through the stories that we tell about ourselves, which are often historical stories, sometimes fictional, sometimes a mix of often a mix of history um, and fiction. And that's why I call them mythologies. Um, and so that, so I'm sort of out there banging the drum, just saying, look, this matters. And, but, you know, we also saw it, I'll give just one more example. Um, when the pandemic began and the debates about lockdown began and, and we learned very quickly that it was not just uh, medicine that, uh, and science and modeling that was determining the government's policy around um around the the uh, control of the pandemic. And this is true, of course, not only in the UK, but but every country in the world, literally every society. Um, there was a there, there were also considerations about social psychology, about crowd behavior, um, about history, about politics. All of those things had to come in to shape how the society would respond to the situation that it found itself in. And to say that, you know, that that simply doing simply getting the vaccine, I mean we've seen now that just getting the vaccine isn't enough the medicine is miraculous they have done something absolutely mind-blowing and yet how do we get people to take it that's a question for the humanities questions mm -hmm. about messaging and communication and storytelling what do you do about the different cultural uptakes in different places you know france as i'm sure you know has uh, um, a very resistant population um, uh, culturally to taking vaccines because of, um, you know, experiences that they had culturally in the 80s and 90s around vaccines. And, and in the U.S., obviously, the politics there and the medical system there mean that they're having a different experience with the take up of vaccines. So the idea that, that that science happens in a vacuum or that medicine happens in a vacuum is really what we're challenging. And we're saying humanities are the context in which everything that we do and are takes place. Mm. And we have a, a prime minister who, of course, read classics, mm. but uh, until recently, his chief advisor was uh, completely damning of arts graduates and saying they wanted the data geeks in charge and so on. I mean, before the pandemic hit, I think some of us felt we were in a different kind of pandemic, a pandemic of, of fake news, that the growth of lies in public life and the rise of something very much like fascism. And you, of course, have written a brilliant book about it, Behold America. Can you say a bit about how you felt when Trump won? <laughs> um, it's, a, it's hard to describe. Um, it was uh, a bereavement. Um, I talk about it the way that a lot of my um, British friends felt after the referendum. I know you felt that way mm. um, after the referendum, this kind of sudden divorce from Europe that you hadn't signed up for. Um, for me, it was, but, but of course, uh, as it was in, in the UK as well, but in the US, it was the sense that, I mean, I think, you know, Trump was a trauma for the world. Um, Trump made clear that America was not the place that we thought it was. And for those of us who were Americans, that was really, really difficult to, um, it was a, it was a sucker punch. It was like, it was a knife in the gut. I mean, it just absolutely, I, I, I couldn't breathe for, for, I mean, I couldn't eat or breathe for like weeks afterwards. Mm. Um, and it really was grief. And, um, and I, and I, Part of the reason I wrote Behold America was to come to terms with it because I had to understand what had happened. Mm. Um, and I and I wrote it in a kind of white heat of rage. Um, and, uh, and, and this determination that America needed to tell the truth about itself and that I needed to tell the truth about it. Yeah. Um, and I've kind of been, you know, trying to work on that since then. I mean, I would say that the, you know, when you say that until recently the, the main pandemic was fake news, I mean, certainly in the U.S., that's still very much... I mean, you know, we're speaking as um, Texas is going through, um, you know, an environmental crisis, um, you know, this terrible ice storm and then and then all of its power has gone and people are dying. And um, what did the governor of Texas do? He got on Fox News and he said it was it, it proved that the Green New Deal was a bad idea. Um, and, and that basically it was, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's fault that Texans are dying. 
right? Well, that's fake news. <laughs> I mean, that is just one lie, you know, one lie after another. And they're not stopping because misinformation works. Um, mm. And that's what's been, that's what's become um, very, very clear. So I'm, I'm um, dismayed and um, uh, um, there's a stronger word than dismayed that I'm looking for. Um uh, that people think that that because Biden became president, that the conversation about fascism in America mm-hmm. should stop or has stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole point of my work is to show that Trump was not an anomaly, that he comes out of a deep history um, in America. And that history didn't go anywhere. It just got to power. And it almost had an insurrection a couple of weeks ago. He still didn't get impeached. They're still not apologizing for it. They're still not admitting that it happened. They're not expelling the members of Congress who supported it. And they're telling me to say that fascism is over. Fascism isn't over. It's in the government. Yeah, It's being supported in the government. So as far as I'm concerned, the fight is still um, a very active one. And um, and America is... um, has gone even further down the road from being, you know, it's embracing the monstrosity uh, that it chose in, in 20, the, the most monstrous, ver- and I don't mean the monstrosity of Trump. I mean, the most monstrous version of itself, um, mm-hmm. of America's selfish individualism, of its dog eat dog capitalism, of its, you know, every man for himself. It's a, the behold America. It's, I mean, it's hugely entertaining, but it's a devastating read. The, the accounts of routine lynchings, the, the photograph of Jesse Washington accused of murdering his white employer, dismembered, charred and lynched. Uh, I mean, I felt really sick reading so much of the book and I, I'm not surprised. To, well, it, it was very clearly written in a white heat of rage. Who Trump was was clear from the, if it wasn't clear before Charlotte's, Charlottesville and it was, it certainly became clear at Charlottesville. And people like me, I mean, not you know, I haven't written much about Trump or um fascism in America but obviously I've tried to speak about it on Sky and so on and we have always been told that we're exaggerating it's hyperbole if you mention the 1930s then uh, you're being hysterical but 1930s is exactly what it was when you wrote the book did you feel I mean what you uncovered some of it you knew before and some of it you presumably didn't did you kind of feel like you had to decontaminate yourself afterwards or do you feel like that all the time when you engage with American politics nowadays I have to it's not decontaminate exactly um I do have to decompress I have Mm. to I I get the bends you know when I try Mm. to emerge from it too quickly um and the rage um continues and obviously that can be very damaging um and so it's learning how to manage that anger um, and, you know, as they say, to take a rest, but not give up, um, mm. and, and to, and to learn how to, um, do various kinds of self-care. I mean, it's just self-protection, mm. um, so that you're not constantly in this state of horror and trauma and it is, um, trauma, but I, I can't decontaminate myself from it because the, the reluctant, um, and I knew this on some level, but I didn't, or I didn't admit it on another level. And, um, and I think for some of us, it was really um, actually the 2020 election that brought it home, that we could no longer treat Trump as an aberration, that we couldn't, as Biden tried to do last summer, um, you know, hit reset and just pretend it was a do-over and say, well, you know, this isn't who we are. Yes, it is. This is exactly who we are. Mm-hmm. And 74 million people voted to keep this on, to keep this going. They thought it was just great. And um, 74 million people, Christine, I mean, that's more than the population of the entire United Kingdom mm. voted which, for which, Trump again. Which, which, ascent, which also is not doing brilliantly on the election well, front. Indeed, indeed, moment. that's another question. Let's another not question. even go there. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do that in another episode, shall we? Yeah. Um, but so, um, you know, so the, um, the, the thing about decontaminating or, or thinking in those terms is that... Um, is is that it's it, it's already to go back to this idea that there is an American innocence that we can reclaim. Yes. I can wash yes. it off. Yes. That there's yes. a purity for me to save. And the thing that that hit me finally, belatedly, because the the um, twenty twenty election was not the redemption that we'd all been looking for. Um, and I suddenly realized, you know, the thing I had struggled in some ways, the thing I struggled with the most, and that seemed the most anomalous until last year when all the violence really exploded. Um, 
Until that point, the thing that had seemed the most anomalous to me was the way that Trump, that Trump's pathological lying and the mm-hmm. way that people just seemed to swallow that or to think it was funny or to, you know, or to believe him um, worse. Um, and, and I suddenly realized that, of course, I've been writing about the fact about America's historical lies. That's what my book is about. My book, I wrote my book in 2017. I wrote it, I mean, I was writing about the KKK in the South and anti-Semitism the day that Charlottesville happened and that right-wingers were shouting Jews will not replace us. And I was literally, you know, when Heather Hare was murdered, I was literally writing about mm. the South and in, in the 30s and 40s. Um, and the so the parallels were, were, you know, absolutely, you know, front and center for me all of the time. So I was writing, you know, I wrote a book about the historical lies that America tells itself and I didn't add two and two and realized that the, the Trump's pathological lying is actually the most symptomatic part of his presidency. He's totally representative of all of the worst things of America. And one of them is our lying, that we are liars. We have been liars from the beginning. The Constitution is a lie. It says this is a country founded in freedom, and it omits the word slavery while explicitly creating protections for slavery in it. It's a lie. This is not something that middle class white Americans like me are encouraged to think about. It's something that African Americans are all too aware of and have been for a long time and have been calling it out um, and and begging us um, to listen to them. Um, And and that's why I say I can't think in terms of decontamination because I'm not I'm not allowed to do that anymore. I have to I have to take responsibility for the lie and I have to take responsibility for. uh, trying to be one of the Americans who works to tell the the actual truth, because that's the only way we can get to a point where maybe we we don't have decontamination exactly, but maybe we can start to, um, you know, I, I think about the the Hemingway line um, where the the world um, the world breaks you in a lot of places, but you yes. can be strong at the broken parts. Broken parts, um, exactly. It's one of my Maybe we can quotes. be strong at the broken parts. Yeah, yeah. For me, one of the biggest surprises of the book was discovering that the phrase the American dream was originally about social democracy and not about rugged individualism and wealth. How surprised were you to discover that? Well, initially, I was quite surprised. But by the time I wrote the book, I had known that for a while. Um, That research came out of my work on The Great Gatsby. So, you know, I started out life as a Fitzgerald scholar, and that's what I thought I was going to do. It's not fascism. (laughs) But the reason that that that, that it made sense, I mean, that may sound crazy to people, like, how do you get from Fitzgerald to fascism? Um, but is um, what I was really working on was America in the 20s and 30s. And um, and so, of course, The Great Gatsby being the novel that's so associated with the American dream, I just wanted to, to, to and, and Gatsby um, doesn't use the phrase the American dream and the phrase the American dream was popularized after Gatsby. And to anybody who works around Gatsby and, and in, in American studies generally, this is well known. Um, but what wasn't well known to me anyway was the kind of origin of the phrase and i actually wanted to dig in and see you know where did it come from and it was fascinating exactly as you say so it came it emerged on the progressive left at um during the gilded age during the rise of monopoly capitalism as a way to say um, monopoly capitalism will destroy the american dream of democracy of equality of opportunity um that clearly, um, you know, having vast um, economic inequality will create an aristocracy and that will kill the American dream because the American dream is equality and democracy for all, um, not just for the rich. And so it was a very explicit kind of critique of the moment that we were in as I was writing it. And yet, you know, I was listening to well, I don't really listen to Fox pundits, but I was aware of Fox pundits, mm-hmm. um, you know, screaming that, that you know, the American dream is all about, you know, radical free market capitalism and radical deregulation and basically libertarianism. Um, and, and not only is that not a, an accurate description of the political foundations of America or any of its kind of um, legal or judicial history, it's not even an accurate reflection of the phrase, the American dream, which turns out to have been coined it to argue exactly the opposite, mm. to say that actually you need to have regulation, that you need to have what became a welfare state. It was the origins of the debate that led to um, the welfare state and to the New Deal. So it, what, the American dream is precisely what those people are, are you know, they, they think it's about guns. And yet the people who coined it thought it was about looking after each other and taking care of everybody and, and creating social social safety nets and, as you say, basically a social democratic outlook. 
And it's so interesting because um, your your brilliant book about Gatsby is called Careless People, which is, of course, a quote from Gatsby. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness, says Scott Fitzgerald of Tom and Daisy. Now, we've seen a lot of careless people in public life and particularly politics in recent years. But if you're careless in a pandemic, you've got less chance of getting away with it. And uh, the libertarians were certainly winning. And you could argue that they've been winning in this country until quite recently but uh, we did have we have had a, a social safety net which who knows how long it will last but we've had it for about nine months now and even our prime minister currently seems to realize that his job basically uh, will uh, he will lose his job if we have another lockdown and therefore he is having to go uh, relatively cautiously do you see, I mean, you know, I, it's rather hard to find any silver linings from this pandemic, but do you think there is any possibility that that something that is life or death like this for literally millions of people has a chance of ensuring that careless people don't get away with as much? It's a good question. I mean, I I wish I thought so. Um, mm. I think that we're, we're in a situation... Um, in our society where money is so the the distribution of money is so unequal and the rich are so very mind-blowingly rich i mean you know the thing about the american dream there is you'll remember from the the earliest um, examples of the american dream are people saying that there's this new thing called a multi-millionaire and that a multi-millionaire is very dangerous right and so i mean they couldn't even conceive of the kinds of money that we're talking about with the bezoses of the world um and they and they would have found that obscene. They absolutely would have. But those people can protect themselves from anything. You know, mm. they can get on yachts and just you know create their own little you know inoculated safe space. Mm. And you know, obviously, maybe we watched it with Trump. He got COVID. He couldn't have been unhealthier. Mm. If anybody should have died of COVID, it should have been that man. Um, mm. If there were any justice, obviously. Um, and of course, they pumped him full of all the rich people's drugs that nobody else could get a hold of. And he and then he was like he was miraculously fine to the yeah. point where conspiracy theories developed that people said he didn't even have it because yeah. he was so ridiculously OK, so ridiculously quickly. Um, and and then, you know, so so I think that we're in this situation where the rich can afford carelessness. Um, mm. they, and that is exactly what. Um, what Fitzgerald's talking about in Gatsby, that, that they can retreat into carelessness because their money protects them. Yes. Well, the rest of us have to earn a living, um, as do you. And on a more practical level, how have you done your job over the past year? Well, like everybody, I've been doing it on screen. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, you asked earlier about how do, how do you do public humanities when you can't leave the house? Um <laughs> I mean, look, that has been one of the silver linings without any question. I think everybody recognizes that, right? Is that not only have we all been forced to go to explore all of these digital platforms that a lot of us were just kind of too busy um, and you'd sort of think, yeah, I'll do that someday. I'll learn how all of that works. But then people never did. And so particularly for universities, all of our events were very much, you know, limited by who could attend and, and um, you know, and, and to, you know, fire laws and you know room space and room hire and all of that stuff so there were you know all kinds of costs attached to it um and then to realize that you can put this stuff on and that people internationally can tune in and they you know you can really share conversations and you can really share events and obviously it sparked a lot of a lot of creativity so part of my job has been um one of my jobs is that i'm the director of the being human festival mm -hmm. which is the uk's festival of the humanities it's our national festival of the humanities and, um, you know, people were concerned that we wouldn't be able to put it on last year. I was concerned that because we work with researchers around the country um, and I was concerned that they that in the and we do it in the autumn and that as the term was resuming, that they would all just be like, are you kidding? This is the last thing I need to do when I'm putting my classes online and I've got to deal with all of this craziness. Um, the last thing I need to do is an extra event um, that's just, you know, for fun, really. Um and, um, or anyway, it's not, you know, it's not central to their work. Um, mm. And yet everybody wanted to do it and everybody wanted to tune in because people were uh, obviously looking for, for things to do. Um, 
but also um, from the researchers point of view, this was the fun part. And they were like, they didn't want to give up the fun part. So Mm. our job was to try to find creative and flexible ways to, to make sure that these events could take place and go online and work with the researchers to make sure that it would be fun for the audiences and that it wouldn't just be somebody sitting on a zoom screen, you know, like a a lecturer treating it like a stage and just talking at you for an hour, which I don't think would be particularly soothing or particularly fun. Um, (laughs) And we, um, we emphasize um, interactivity and that a festival should be participatory. And, um, and that's a challenge with um, digital events, obviously, but there was a lot of creativity that got unleashed and people had really um, fun and innovative solutions. Um, for thinking that through just like people would do there was a lot of cooking actually and so people would send historical recipes if you were joining the events and then you could cook along with them at home but they'd give you a kind of mini lecture about the history of the food or you know listen to music and you'd get a lecture on the history of the music and stuff like that so there was a lot of there was a lot of fun and creativity so that was really an upside and um and I enjoyed doing I mean it was a challenge but I enjoyed doing it a lot um but the other thing that I did was was write a fair amount because last year the um as I, I alluded to earlier, of course, the violence in the U.S. Um, escalated and the whole debate about Trump and fascism exploded. And mm. I felt very strongly that um, that the way that debate was being framed um, was not helpful or it wasn't that it was inaccurate exactly, but that it was it just wasn't the best way of framing it because the debate kept being, um, well, Trump isn't Hitler and therefore it's not fascism. Mm. And what I wanted to do to reframe it via my research in behold America was no, it's not Hitler, but there is an American fascism. There is a tradition of American fascism that goes back to the twenties and thirties. And that is what this is. So this, no, this is not German fascism. This is American fascism and all fascisms are indigenous by definition because it's ultranationalism. So it can't seem foreign or it won't be because the whole thing about fascism is there are the real people, the Herrenvolk, who are the pure folk of the land, um, the, 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 you know, middle England or middle America are the real Americans. And, and, and you, you, by definition, that can't be alien. So, so what I said was like, we have, to, we have to ask the question in a different way. Um, and so I became um, very uh, actively involved in those debates. And I, and I wrote a lot of journalism around it, which was, um, you know, really, it was really, I wrote a lot. It was really demanding. Um, and I feel uh, still slightly exhausted from all of that, but I felt it was really important that, um, that that part of the argument keep being made because I felt like it was giving people an out um, and that it was really important that we confront to what to my mind is the truth of the situation mm-hmm. so that was really how I spent um 2020 was trying to put on oh trying to put on a festival with one hand and and fighting fascism with the other hand which is a, <laughs> which is a really weird way to live your life <laughs> all all inside your own house <laughs> well at least you are fighting fascism I think what many of us feel in my poor from, way but... from your you know very lovely sitting room <laughs> <laughs> What what I think many of us feel is that we are living in an age where fascism in America is very evident, but it also, you know, its cousin here in, I, I know that the word fascism is a very strong word to use, but there is no question that some of the Johnsonian and particularly Cummings techniques were Bannon, you know, they were kind of Bannon techniques. And, and, and it, I recently reviewed a book called The Art of Fairness by David Badanis, and um, he one of the characters he writes about is a young aspiring novelist and poet who gets frustrated and ends up becoming Hitler's chief propagandist, Goebbels. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very interesting reading about his techniques. They are the Bannon techniques, they are the Trump mm-hmm. techniques, and they are to some extent the vote leave techniques. I mean, obviously it's a, it's a scale, but um, it's very hard to know what we can do about this. The algorithms and the bots and the careless people running Silicon Valley a lot of the time seem to be winning. You have a job that is actually, you know, to, to use that phrase, speaking truth to power. A lot of journalism is able to do that if you are lucky enough to have a prominent voice in journalism. But for most of us, we feel there isn't very much we can do. What would you say to your average person doing, by average person, I mean, you know, people like you and me, but, you know, maybe not with your particular job. Um, 
how do we how do we fight that feeling of impotence? I mean, obviously, mm. we speak the truth is a good start, but you know, beyond that. Well, it's a really good question, and it and it is why I wrote the book because I did I, like everybody. I felt impotent, and that was exactly it. Was I had this kind of platform, um, and I took it. Um, I you know I remember talking about this with my sister, who's a lawyer um, in the U.S. Um, the day after uh, Trump's election in 2016, and um, and it was it was on Facebook, which I don't even do anymore because that was pre Cambridge Analytica, um, and. Um, and she said, you know, she was kind of like, what do we do? Um, and I said, look, I don't have any, you know, I don't have any magic feathers or, you know, um, I don't really know. Um, but it seems to me that what we all have to do is to work out what our, what our, what our best skill is that we can best leverage to the problem. Mm. And then, and if you can leverage too, anyway, you know what I mean. Um, mm. And and that and that we have to figure out what's the match, right? What's the thing where I can do the heaviest lifting that will have the most effect on this outcome? And so, for me as a writer and as an educator, I thought, well, that's how I can do it. I can do it through history and through trying to intervene in the debate. And obviously, as a journalist, you can do that that way, too, by trying to intervene in the debate. But I was like, you know, for my sister as a lawyer, I was like, well, you need to use the law, right? I mean, or, or you know, and she's hyper-organized, right? My sister's like the most organized person on the planet. And I was like, so surely you need to go organize, right? Like, by definition, you are the person who should go organize. Um, and so I, I feel like I don't know if that's if that's a, a good enough answer, I don't know that we have a better answer. Mm. I think that people need to educate themselves, obviously. I think that people need to take this seriously. Um, I think that we need to work to fight um, political apathy, obviously. Um, and I and and you know, I think that we need to um, we do have to go back to uh, well, I was gonna say, so, you know, in America, the, the conversation now is that people are trying to argue for a return of the fairness doctrine and the fairness doctrine was our broadcasting rules that said that both sides of a debate had to be um, had to be represented fairly and objectively. Right. So it wasn't both sidesism of the kind that we see now. Mm -hmm. It was not arguing at the time that uh, that you should counter the truth with a lie and that yeah. that would be both sides. And that, and that, <laughs> and that QAnon is a perfectly acceptable yeah. side to counter. <laughs> Exactly. It was precisely arguing the opposite, which is that, you know, and, and to me, one of the things that I try to, to say to people is it's not that we don't have debate. It's that we shouldn't be debating what the facts are. We mm. should be debating what we do about the facts. Mm. But we have to go back to a consensual sense of the facts. Now, to your point earlier about will the pandemic have something to um, to do in, in kind of limiting how much careless people can get away with yes to a certain extent because this is the reality principle and it's hitting them it's certainly been hitting the gop who wanted to say that you know politicized yeah. masks to the nth degree and all of yeah. that stuff so that gets harder um so there are ways in which the reality is striking back and i think that people are seeing how important it is that um that there is a shared uh, a consensual reality and a consensual truth. Um, you know, what worries me is that is that there are too many people in Britain who see what's happened in America and are determined to go down that route. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm very um, anxious about the start of GB News. Me too. Me um, too. I'm very anxious about it. I think that Fox News is, is as responsible as any single entity for what's happened um, yeah. to American politics in my lifetime. And the idea that the BBC is is somehow um, is somehow you know enthralled in, in to a leftist agenda is exactly the way Fox News argued its way into existence by saying the New York Times was liberal. The New York Times has conservative columnists, has highly conservative columnists. Brett Stevens, Ross Douthat, these guys are as conservative as you come. And Fox News never has liberal commentators. The BBC has conservatives on all the time. It had Nigel Farage on every time you turned on the damn channel. And the idea that that is a liberal, you know, bastion that needs to be countered by an all right wing channel yeah. that will they have, will GB news have liberals on? I don't know. Um, Fox news certainly does not. So um, that's how you create that right wing, you know, echo chamber. Mm. And by the end of that, you have 74 million people who think that Biden didn't win a free and fair election when he did. And when international election observers say that he did, they say it was an absolutely, you know, it was a rock solid, clean and clear election. Um, 
And, you know, a generation on, you know, basically we've lost a generation to Fox News and that's what um, the UK is racing merrily toward. Do you think that there are enough young people who want to go into academia and do the scholarship that counters these narratives? Because the great dream now, or one of the great dreams is the tech. You know, I want to start my own Facebook or Google or Uber or Airbnb or whatever it might be. Do you see many, I mean, it's it's hard. An academic career now is like most careers is, you know, it's hard to pursue. What would you say to a young person who wants to pursue, who, who sees your career and thinks I want some of that? which isn't just you can't have it <laughs> although it could be although it could be you can't, although it could be you can't no. have when people ask me for journalistic advice obviously I I have to say well you know the industry is completely different it was always yeah. tough but it's completely different so you know what can they realistically expect yeah well I think that's it right is that we have to say with all of them I mean what I say is, look, we're all in this brave new world of the gig economy. Mm. Um, and in academia, everybody is, uh, you know, the pressure on academics is now to raise money externally from outside of your university to fund your own research, to fund your own role in some cases, to fund your own position, to fund your own department, your own project, um, and indeed to fund your institution because the government doesn't fund it, student tuition fees don't cover it. Um, and and so that, so people are, so everybody is, ha- it's like we're all freelancers now. It's just sometimes you're freelancing on behalf of an organization and sometimes you're freelancing as an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's what academics do now. We spend most of our time writing grants, trying to bring in money to fund the things that we were hired to do. And you just go, well, <laughs> I was hired to do that. And it's like, so we've all just become fundraisers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things I say to students when they want to be an academic is I say, well, you need to learn how to fundraise. Yeah. Um, and um, which doesn't sound very fun, does it? Yeah. Um, I mean, unless you're really into fundraising, in which case go directly into fundraising. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, like, just go for it. Um, yeah. So, um, look, I think where I do see lots of hope is that is that uh, there's no question that young people are hungry for truth. They're hungry for knowledge. Um, the idea that they're a lazy generation or that they're or that they're in all of this kind of free speech nonsense about mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, that they're intolerant or something. It's absolute nonsense in my experience anyway. And young people just want to get at the truth and they and they want to understand the world that they inhabit like all of us. Um, I think that they are much more. I, I think it's not. Uh, it's not particularly original observation, insightful of me to, to point out that they're a highly politicized um, generation. So I think they're much more likely to go into politics than they are than to go into academia um, mm. or and, 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 you know, community organizing, not necessarily mm, mm. You know, government politics, but to become activists in various ways. Obviously, environmental activism is going to be huge. All of that mm. takes real knowledge. You don't do that without also really knowing what you're talking about. So I think that we may well see the reorganization of quote unquote expert knowledge um, and that it will be distributed in different ways. It will be professionalized in different ways. Um, but the um, and and I don't know what will happen to academia. I don't think academia is sustainable uh, as it is currently practiced in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, I don't see it. Uh, it certainly can't continue the way it's going. That's not going to happen. So um, and you know you're you're going to be looking at a so-called brain drain, which isn't to say that the people who are in there are the only ones with brains, and not that there aren't you know young hungry. Um, smart people or, or indeed older people who've been on the outsides of, of academia, um, you know, trying to get in, as you say, I mean, it's just harder and harder to get into like journalism. Um, but the structures are disintegrating again, like journalism. Um, mm. So what that career path looks like, I don't know. And I think that it just behooves all of us who are who are older in these industries to, as you just said, to be honest with young people and to say mm. it's a totally different job. And mm. I can't tell you how to get my job now because the pathway that I took doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I do think, you know, this comes up a lot in this podcast, but for anyone who wants to have a career or part of a career focusing on either creative endeavor not paid for by an employer or intellectual endeavor not paid for by an employer i.e to be a you know writer public intellectual whatever you want to call it or a poet one of your key skills 
is going to have to be finding the money to pay the rent and uh, and it's got to be enough money to uh, to release you some hours a week to do the work you really want to do and I certainly wasn't taught about any of that when I was young it never occurred to me you know my mother was a teacher my father was a civil servant you know nobody talked about you didn't have huge amounts of it but we were you know we never worried about having food or a roof over our head and uh, you know, had a perfectly good Morris Marina and so on. And, uh, um, do you think that, where do you think the role, who's, whose job is it to teach youngsters about that stuff? Well, I think as a society, we're all going to have to get a lot better about that. I mean, you know, there are more, just to give one little example, but there are a lot more university programs now that are teaching financial literacy as part of their degree structure. Mm. Um, so that you just learn that stuff. And, you know, and I would have welcomed that. Like, you know, I, I graduated from college without the faintest idea, you know, really. I mean, I learned about compound interest in high school and then it promptly went out of my head again and I didn't really understand it, you know. And so some of those kind of practical life skills, I think, as a society, we need to make sure that we equip people better for the complex world that they're entering. Mm. Um I think that, you know, and that's not beyond the wit of man. I mean, those aren't those are particularly difficult problems to solve. Now, whether you can get, you know, young people interested in it, paying attention, I don't know, but you can at least give them the basic skills. Um, the I think that there are, um, in terms of the creative industries and stuff, I mean, I will circle back to this idea of the public humanities, um, because I think that there is, and this is complicated, but there is um, something to be said for the ways in which this, um, well, yeah, as with everything, right? There's a, there's a, there's a cost and a benefit, right? It's a, there's a pro and a con. Um, but the ways that this is pushing people, um, uh, academics to write, um, in many cases to write for public audiences or indeed to write commercially. Mm-hmm. So instead of writing the, the poetry that, you know, I mean, and look, you know, Scott Fitzgerald dealt with this, right? So he wrote commercial fiction to subsidize mm-hmm. his, the, the artistic novels that he wanted to write. So this is not a new problem for, mm. you know, for creatives. And obviously in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, they went for, you know, rich patrons. And we may yeah. end up back with that where, you know, yeah. billionaires are funding artists. We seem to be heading back into feudal society in lots of other ways. So why not? Or you write for the Sunday Times. <laughs> well, you know, exactly. So that's the thing, right? So, or you write for, well, you know, in my case, you know, you, you, I write, I try to write books that are, um, that add to, so, you know, the, the kind of baseline definition of scholarship is, is, has it, has it been an original contribution to knowledge? Have you told people who know about the field? Have you revealed something new? Have you looked at it in a different way? Have you made a different argument? Have you, you know, added value to the, to the, uh, conversation, or are you merely regurgitating, merely retreading? In which case, it's not considered scholarship, although it may be of interest and it may be even, you know, useful. Um, but the but I try to write books that do that, that make that original contribution, but are also of interest to a general public and are therefore what we call a crossover book, right? Mm-hmm. So that they also have some commercial viability. Now, as I say, so there, there, and there's a, there's an upside to that, which is that it means that academics don't have the luxury of simply talking in their closed circles anymore in this language that is exclusionary, um, that's highly uh, um, uh, technical, and mm. that if you don't have a PhD in it, you don't understand. And and in the case of a lot of the humanities work, it's also highly abstract. So for people who aren't trained in thinking in abstract terms, it's difficult to follow, and they don't have the concrete examples that make it kind of make sense. Um, the, the, the downside to that is that it means that everything has to be introductory on some level. You have to make sure that you're, that you're bringing your reader along. And it means that there will be, um, that there, that it will be harder to do advanced work because that's what the technical language is for. Um, but it will also be harder to do niche work. It will be harder to do stuff that only a few people are interested in, but is actually really important for mm. the kind of, you know, broad um, conservation of human knowledge. Um, and, and I think that's the challenge is to figure out the ways in which, so as a society, we used to support that stuff because we recognized that it was important to know about this, even if, you know, a, you know, a hundred thousand people don't want to read about it. It's still an important thing to understand and to know about 
I think we need to recalibrate that because um, I think we went too far in that direction. And there are there is stuff that's being published, and and this is uh, this is a apostasy. Um, I'm not supposed to say this as an academic, but um, you know there is stuff being published that I'm not convinced really adds a lot of value. If I'm completely mm. honest, um, but that's a high standard, and 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 you know the we need to get the balance better about. What is it that people can contribute in a way that they find meaningful, that allows them to do work that they find valuable, that they enjoy? I mean, we want to create a society where people are working in fields that they find enriching and fulfilling, mm. not a one-size-fits-all model where everybody retrains as an engineer, for heaven's sake, yeah. um, which is also insulting to engineers, as mm. if as if anybody can do it. Like, they're they're quite skilled and they're really clever. And like, you know, I would be a really bad engineer. But it's, um, you know? it's, it's it's Fatima pivoting to cyber, isn't it? Whatever the mm. hell that might be. Exactly. That absolutely awful thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, so the, the thing is, is to, you know, what we want surely is to develop a society that is pluralist in its recognition of people's abilities and interests and, and figures out ways for them to, to create gainful employment through that. But that, of course, then, you know, takes us around to arguments around universal basic income and things mm. like that. And that may be where we end up as a society. I, mm. I think that's a little bit above my pay grade, so to speak, <laughs> to make a bad pun. Um, but, but that's obviously where those conversations take you. Yes, yes. Well, that would be a lovely outcome of the pandemic, but I, I suspect a slightly unlikely one. We've looked at some pretty bleak areas and we have touched on some slightly more hopeful ones. If, if you were to pick one realistic hope for something good to come out of this pandemic, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I do hope that, I think it will, um, make people reassess flexible working. It already has. Um, now, in some ways, again, there will be downsides to that. Um, obviously, employers are seeing that they can cut costs by not having office space and, and things like that and force mm. people to work from home who don't want to. Mm. Um, and that would be problematic. Again, if it's a one-size-fits-all, if it's a one-size-fits-all, it's not flexible by definition, right? Mm. Um, but a truly flexible approach to to work would enable a lot more people to have better work-life balance, to be able to deal, obviously, with caring responsibilities, um, but to also, you know, uh, um, for all of us, as again, as a society, um, to break out of the kind of rigid, you know, presentism and the office cultures, which can be quite toxic in their ways as well, obviously, mm. um, and, and to allow people to tailor um, a, a working life that is better suited to their personal circumstances as well. If we could do that in a constructive way that, as I say, doesn't just become exploitative, which it may well do, our society being what it is. Um, but it, at the moment, it's allowing for a, a positive and constructive version of flexibility um, where, you know, we don't all have to be in the office to get the job done. Um, and, and that allows people to, um, as I say, to, to juggle all of these different um, obligations that we all have in this, you know, complex world so to me that would be the most obvious mm. uh, benefit um, Good. and that that to me sounds you know relatively realistic <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's end on that relatively hopeful note it's a it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast and to talk to you Sarah and I as you know we both like a party and I <laughs> cannot wait to see you at a real party at some point thank you thank you Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you liked it, I'd be really grateful if you could share, rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. It really does help other people find it. Do follow me on Twitter where I'm at QueenChristina underscore and on Instagram where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us. And I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>